Welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, Graham Potter returns to the Amex Stadium. Brighton get the better of his Chelsea side. We'll talk booze from the Seagulls. Also, today we'll be talking about Leeds beating Liverpool. What does it mean for Jesse March's future? Has he stopped the slide indefinitely? Also, what does it mean for Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool? And how do they get out of their current slump? We'll talk about Arsenal's 5-0 win over Nottingham Forest as they propel themselves into the title race. We'll also be talking about the Decordovers. Uh, Fulham's Bobby decordova to be precise, and his Labour MP sister. Also, should Kevin De Bruyne be in the Premier League's all-time 11? And should Marcus Rashford go to the World Cup? All that and more on the game. Hello, welcome back to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft alongside Tom Clark, Alison Rudd and Gregor Robertson on this Monday morning. We begin with Chelsea. Uh, Graham Potter getting a pretty hostile reception from the Brighton fans before being embarrassed against his former team, really. A 4-1 defeat at the Amex. Remember, of course, that Potter led Brighton to their highest ever top flight finish of ninth last season before uh, leaving for Stamford Bridge just six games into the current campaign. Great stat here. Leandro Trossard has scored all five of Brighton's goals in the Premier League under their new boss, Roberto De Zerbi. That is the first time a player has scored a team's first five goals under a new manager. There you go. What stat that is to start. Listen, Tom Roddy joins us from the side of a motorway somewhere as he, of course, was doing his wonderful job for the Times. But he's taken some time, having been at this game, to join us. So hello, Tom. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm all right. How do you think Graham Potter's doing? I wonder whether he might be analysing the game this morning because he did say on Saturday evening that it was one that would take a little bit of time. He'd need a bit of time before watching it back because it was, I think it was that painful. It was that emotionally charged at the Amex. It was it was the record attendance for that stadium, which has been open for eleven years now. And it was really quite clear that there was there was a, a vengeful atmosphere. Potter, when he came out, he was cordoned off by a group of stewards and a a, a very um a very muscular Chelsea security guards kept very close to him throughout the afternoon because of course the 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 raid that Chelsea have done on Brighton since the new owners came in. It's seven members of staff so far from players to recruitment to coaches who have gone and it looks like an eighth as well with Paul Wynn Stanley, the head of recruitment at Brighton, heading towards Chelsea. Yeah, I just noticed him as well, to be honest. I mean, you've got to mention the size of the security guard when he's built like a brick outhouse. So that's all right that you did that, Tom. Don't worry about it. What about the game itself, though? What did Brighton do so well? What did Chelsea do so wrong? Well, it was partially, partially forced in Chelsea's mistake. I mean, I always, I always think with Potter's teams, it's it's a little bit like a, a Rubik's Cube you're trying to work out when they're, they're named. A lot of teams like Conte's... Um, you, you know what's coming. Most teams have a, a very clear starting eleven. Potter's never does. You're always trying to work it out. And this was a case where he had Raheem Sterling starting as sort of a wing-back. Christian Pulisic starting as sort of a wing-back as well. And it worked against RB Salzburg in the week, but certainly not here. I mean, Roberto De Zerbi did a, did a job on them, really probably from watching that Salzburg game because they got him behind. Estupinian was brought back in, recalled for the first time, and Solly March on the other side. They got him behind Chelsea's wing-back, 
stretched out Trevor Shalabar on the right, stretched out Mark Cucurella on the left, and they were really exposed. And that was the area each of Brighton's goals came from, whether it was from the wide position or from a wide player, that was where they hurt them. And Potter was a little bit slow in responding to it. It was 3-0 down at half-time when he brought on Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who had a <laughs> who immediately showed why he should have played there. And you see Ben Chilwell sitting on the bench and wonder why he's not playing at left wing-back and why Raheem Sterling is, because it felt a little bit like Sterling's wings were clipped by playing in that position. He was not an attacker, he wasn't a defender. He was pretty ineffective again. I wonder, Tom, what was the general sort of mood amongst... Um, the media, especially those who watch a lot of Brighton, because in theory you would say, who is the best manager to go to go to Brighton and understand how they play, what their potential weaknesses might be, certainly to be forewarned as to what their strengths are. You'd say that would be Graham Potter as he, I think he even boasted sort of in his post-match that he created the Brighton side that we watched dismantle Chelsea. So why would, <laughs> did they do something unusual to undermine someone who thought they knew them really well? Or do you think perhaps Potter was almost sidetracked by what sort of reception he would get and the emotion of the piece? Because I know you wrote a piece before the game about how you know he talked about his emotions going back to Brighton. So was he too concerned about that and not about the tactics and just assumed it would all fall into place because he knows the team really well? Because it doesn't seem to add up to me that the manager that would go there and be so embarrassed would be the one that knows the team so well, unless he had been, you know, distracted in some way. I think you're spot on, Ali. I think he was distracted, really, by the reaction he received once he got there. Whether I think he got his tactics wrong going into the game, but I think he may have altered to them a little earlier had he not been sidetracked and probably, well, almost certainly upset by the way the fans responded to him. And I don't, I don't think it really is Graham Potter on his own. I think it is Chelsea and the fact they've taken so many staff with them. If it was just Graham Potter and his usual backroom staff, I don't think they'd have had an issue, really. They probably would have welcomed him back, as they have done other players who have left them. But Mark Cucurella got the biggest uh, it was deafening booze every time he touched the ball because of him submitting a transfer request in the summer, asking to leave after just one season. And I think you're you're right, Ali. He was the spikiest I've ever heard him, which isn't which, which, which isn't much with Graham Potter. But he did make the point. He said, I, "I I hope that they get managers who can do as good a job as I did." Essentially, that was what he was saying. I mean, I would say emotions are more important than than tactics we're talking about uh, the, the wing backs there and if Chelsea had kept the ball better and hadn't kind of sub, you know lost possession so easily Thiago Silva at the start kind of gifted possession and then he, he was being praised for a, a goal line clearance which he kind of <laughs> initiated in the first place so like if they kept the ball better then the wing backs would be higher up the pitch and they'd be a useful attacking outlet but Chelsea were just overrun it seemed to me Tom like the way that Brighton pressed they just weren't able to, to play through that so that's all about Brighton's desire to beat their old manager and that comes down to emotions and Chelsea weren't at the same kind of heightened state. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a mixture of both. Um, I think the, the Chelsea made mistakes 
because Trevor Chalabar's own goal, which really killed off the game, was smart tactics from Brighton and a failure of Chelsea to remedy the mistakes that, that were in place with the wing-backs. But at the same time, Brighton took a really fast lead because they were on it. They were absolutely on it. And it was highly charged from the beginning because the, the stadium announcer, the music, it was all ramped up in there because of how emotional this was going to be. And the players responded. Really? Was the, was the music louder than normal? <laughs> Genuinely? <laughs> It, it felt like it. Season ticket holders said it was certainly, it, it felt like it, but maybe that was just emotions inside them. They felt more up for it, but that was what it felt like. And that was what they said, that that this was really prepared for a, a revenge. And the players responded because you see the first two goals, uh, the first two chances with Thiago Silva clearing off the line. It comes from mistakes, but it comes from forced mistakes. Brighton did not allow Chelsea to play out from the back. They were all over them, hunting down impacts. In, in the way that we talk about the best Liverpool team in recent years, that was how they were playing. They were just all over them from and not allowing them any time on the ball. One other thing... I don't think Potter's looked at the recent history of Chelsea managers, or if he has, he's decided to go his own way. What's happened in recent years has been a manager comes into Chelsea, and there's lots of them. I mean, they rotate their managers with swift regularity. Manager comes in and changes the system and then sticks to the system and develops an identity very quickly just by tweaking it from four at the back to three at the back and then vice versa. But Potter has come in and he's tweaking as he goes along. So Chelsea don't know what they're going to play because they could start with five at the back and then end up with four or make it a three, four, three and then change it again. I mean, it might sound facile, but I actually think a group of players who've been used to a manager who knows what he wants and what the system is might not be helping them. No, true. Although this is it's not only a new manager, it's largely a new group of players as well. The amount of, of signings they made in the summer, um, they're, they're really having to adapt. And you're seeing quite a bit of experimentation. And I remember right from when Potter came in, before they'd even played a game, I think it was Azpilicueta, so Azpilicueta talking about it. And he was addressing the not just the tactics that were needing to be employed and what Potter was asking of him and them from from a game. But the, the fluctuations, the changes constantly in a game. I mean, you'll know well, Ali, from covering Potter and doing Grand Potter's games before, but when we put in the newspaper and online these formations, it's not really hugely reflective of mm. what you see on the pitch because you could have about four or five because they change so much. I was kind of disappointed with the level of vitriol. Like, you know, you can sort of expect the manager to get booed. And you may have seen that I was arguing with many Brighton fans on social media, spoke to my friend Jules Breach, BT Sport presenter. Yeah, we, massive, follow, we follow you all week. That's all we do, actually. <laughs> can I just respond to that by saying every time... No, no, can I just respond? Every time I ask Alison Rudd what game she went to at the weekend... Right, every single time she looks at me with such disgust, as if, oh, you haven't read my match report this week. You don't know what game I've been. Well, it so is the Times game podcast. How dare you? How dare you? Now listen, 
the Brighton fans were basically saying to me, look, you just don't get it. It's not that the manager's left. It's that he's gutted our football club by taking all of these backroom members of staff. Well, I get that. And it wasn't a problem when you took Graham Potter and the same backroom members of staff from Swansea City. That is the game. That is how it works. Yes, Chelsea have gone further. And yes, many of those Brighton fans said they wanted to direct their anger to Todd Bowley and Chelsea as a whole. And many of them expressed something that I totally agree with, which is a sort of feeling of, of powerlessness that, you know, a big club with more money can come in and destroy what you've been doing so well. Some Brighton fans pointing out that they felt like they were on the verge of something really special. Ultimately, and I know Brighton fans have put their hands into their own pockets to save the club on many occasions, but money has put Brighton into the position that they are now. There is no doubting that. So if you hate money in the game and you hate the fact that Chelsea have loads of it and they have the finances to come into your club, take members of staff, take club legends like Bruno away from you, Paul Winstanley's the latest, and use their financial might, then you would have a problem that your club does it to smaller clubs in the ecosystem. But you don't. That is the game. This is football. That's what happens. It doesn't maybe happen as aggressively as what's happening between Chelsea and Brighton right now. And I understand that. But I still hope that with time, the Brighton fans will show more respect to Graham Potter because he was a great manager for their club. And he has left them in a fantastic place to go on and hopefully achieve better things. And you hope that the, the great ownership they have at Brighton will have a solution to those leaving the club. But ultimately... Those backroom members of staff are choosing to go to Chelsea, including club legend Bruno. You know, I'd be more unhappy about him. You know, you you helped him a 10-year period at the the club, you know, fulfill his dreams as a player, now a first-team coach. He didn't bat an eyelid going to Chelsea. Why would you care so much that Graham Potter did? Or Mark Kukurea. I mean, I mean, some of them pointing out Mark Kukurea left for Chelsea. I mean, come on. You got big money for him and he's a footballer. He's going to go and play Champions League football. Some of it I felt was, and I'm not saying that there shouldn't have been any boos, but I would have thought that there would have been a modicum more of, you know, it maybe the game came too soon. That's all I'm going to say. Hopefully a couple of years down the line, you know, they'll have softened slightly in their stance. But this is this is your traditional football pantomime. And I think the fans wanted to feel angry and indignant because they knew that would have an effect on the atmosphere. I, don't, I, I think half of them probably weren't as angry as they were pretending. Yeah. It's good fun to boo. And it, they could tell it was creating an intense atmosphere. So then everybody, even the most mild-mannered and fair-minded, would have thought, oh, I'm getting in on this because this is helping our team. I also think it's a wee bit reductive to say that, you know, Brighton are there because of money. Brighton are there because of intelligence as well. And kind of intelligence in terms of the recruitment, intelligence of yeah. going out and getting you Graham Potter. You can't achieve it without money. Of course. Yeah. But I'm, not saying it's the only, are... I'm not saying it's the only reason, but the fact the clubs had to put their own hands in their pockets to save that football team on multiple occasions suggests being a top half team in the Premier League, what, a decade later, two decades later? They're overachieving. It's not just overachieving. It suggests that the owner, who has a lot of money, has been a big part in that. They're not in League One. They're not, not in the yet. Championship. They're a top half Premier League team now. Yeah, but it's not all about say, money because the same with Brentford. So I didn't say it was all about money. I, know, well, I said fact, money helped to get you there and it did. You can't argue that. Yeah, but it's a different thing from Brighton going out and getting Swansea manager to Chelsea coming in and cleaning them all out because there's very little sign of intelligence there. There might be in the future, Why? but there's just big so bucks. It, so it was smart when Brighton did it to Swansea, but it's not smart when Chelsea do it to Brighton. Uh, I think it was... Well, both were bold, but you don't see very many clubs sacking 
a well-respected head coach in Chris Hewton who kept them in the Premier League and going out and getting some guy from the Championship who had a decent first season and before that worked in Sweden. So you know, and, that, and that's uncommon. And did very that's well uncommon. at Ostersunds. Yeah, but look, all I'm saying is I think it's a little bit more than just about money. I don't think this is a I little bit money I never said it was just about money. I said money helped to get you there. Yeah, Chris Hewton didn't <laughs> have does. a clue he was going to get sacked. That's ruthless. He did what he was asked to do. They stayed up. Next minute, he's in a porter cabin with the owner being told I, I, to, listen, to pack his pack his coat. I don't want to beat up Brighton. This is not me saying that they're not a fantastic club and they haven't run the, the club really well and they haven't made a shrewd appointment. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if you feel like it's unfair that a club with the financial might of Chelsea can come and gut your club, but that is the ecosystem with which Premier League football is all about. And that happens regularly. Yeah, all of football. That's all I'm saying. It was, it, was, it was certainly a bold move, Hugh. We've not even done that. But credit to Brighton bit that normally happens. Only all the I, thought, I, I thought Tom Roddy had given loads of credit to Brighton. Yeah, he'd done a little bit. But which is very interesting when you talk about managerial changes and you've got Deserby coming in, replacing a manager who moved on, not a manager who was sacked. And essentially he's doing ex- everything that Potter was doing before really well, putting in performances against big teams, Liverpool, Chelsea, and getting a lot out of players that, you know, they're putting players in the team that, I'm like, where, where the hell's this guy come from? The guy in midfield, um, Mitoma, I thought had a great game. Yeah. And again, he's only played a few games for them, I think. It's incredible, I think. Deserby himself, when we're talking about managers, deserves a huge amount of credit. Come from a different league into the Premier League and kind of just picked up where Potter left off, having lost a lot of staff and players. And after five games with a win, you know, yeah. but they'd actually played, they had played well. You know, played really well, yeah. Liverpool, obviously, a great start, although they, they didn't win the game. Spurs, I, I was at that game, I thought they were really unlucky. So you're right, it's been a good start, but you, need, you know, it was like we're almost slipping back into that same old Brighton can't finish. Sort yes, of they were. Yeah, they were. Uh, and they, they put that to bed in this game. Tom Roddy, final word on it? I, th- I think that part of the atmosphere as well is actually created by the context. And as you pointed out, Deserby hasn't got a win. The managers who's just desert- deserted to them in a, in a in a probably a harsh way of wording it, but deserted them, has gone nine games unbeaten. I think they just felt so kind of hard done by with the, the context. And I just wanted to f- finish by focusing on Brighton. And it, this felt like a line in the sand for Roberto De Zerbi and, and possibly even lift off for his Brighton career because... For so long, and Tom Allnut wrote a really good piece about this on Saturday, he's been he's been in this tricky position of trying not to change anything, which is, tends to be the opposite of what managers do when they replace other managers in the Premier League and in, and in football. He's been trying not to change too much. But this was his win, and, and you saw this with his reaction to the first goal. I mean, he was, he was almost in the centre circle, the way he was running on the pitch and leaping in the air. And and hopefully after what's happened, hopefully this is they, they can sort of steady and progress from here because as Gregor pointed out, they 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 tend to have a plan. They tend to be they are a, one of the, the better clubs in the Premier League for for future planning. And it, it felt like an important day for them and Derby. Brilliant, Tom Roddy. Thank you for joining us. You can get back on with your your journey now on the side of a motorway as ever, Tom Roddy. There. We've got plenty more to come on the game podcast. It was a big weekend and, and once again, credit to Brighton, don't at me. But it was another big weekend elsewhere. 
Alison what? It won't, it won't matter well, whether they at you or not. Alison won't see it because she doesn't she doesn't look at your Twitter. <laughs> you, you just you just keep talking to your people, Hugh. That's fine. We're mere conduits for your fame. I think that's unfair. Yeah, I mean, absolutely uh, ruined. So. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, it's slightly unfair. But anyway, Alison, I think I'll come to you next. Uh, shock defeat. For Liverpool this weekend, oh, Crescencio Somerville scoring a dramatic late winner. I'm sure you saw it. A 2-1 victory for Leeds at Anfield. They move out of the relegation zone. Now, remember, Liverpool beat the great team in the Premier League, Manchester City. That was, it feels like a long time ago, but only the 16th of October. Since then, I'm sure you know this, Alison, they lost to bottom of the table, Nottingham Forest. Now Leeds United as well. But anyway, I should say, Virgil van Dijk. This is a great stat. Come on, first time in his Liverpool career that he has been on the losing side in a Premier League game at home at Anfield. 70 games unbeaten. Kind of, that's a positive. But really, the result was a huge negative for Liverpool. Things going pretty badly at the moment, which, you know, it's devastating for a lot of us. Champions League (laughs) hopes hanging in the balance. What do you think? It's all right because Liverpool will win the Champions League and that's how they will qualify <laughs> for the Champions League next season after finishing 10th. So uh, I've got no worries about European competition. I think what needs to be sorted out from what you said there, Hugh, is the inconsistency whereby Liverpool can defeat Manchester City, but not the teams that are struggling at the very, very bottom. Why would that be? I think that's partly because... City is scared, more scared of Liverpool than on the day Leeds and on the day Forest were. It's, I, that, and I actually mean that properly. I'm not joking. Because Pep Guardiola has been constantly undone by the power of Anfield and the brilliance of Klopp. And sometimes when Guardiola is respectful of an opponent, he, opponent, he doesn't get it quite right. And he's possibly too deferential. And that transmits to the players. Whereas Liverpool lost to a Forest team that were buoyant at home and the atmosphere was fantastic and there was no fear at all from the Forest players. And they had evidence that Liverpool were faltering, so why not have a go? Similarly, Jesse Marsh said after defeating Liverpool with that late goal that he told his players, you know, if you come here and you're scared, it's going to go wrong for you. And he'd had experience of that himself. So he, he said, let's let's not have fear. So as soon as you get a back catalogue of examples of other teams that have decided not to be scared of Liverpool, you can go for it. So with each successive poor performance that Liverpool put in, it emboldens others. And in some respects, a team like Leeds had nothing to lose because it could have been make or break on the day for the manager had they been heavily defeated or embarrassed by Liverpool. So that basically Liverpool are losing their aura. It's It has come to virtual Van Dijk losing his record and it's not about Van Dijk, it's about the power of the Anfield crowd. And when that can't get you over the line, something is very wrong. I will accept that. Alison, you seem quite, quite sad and dejected there. Are you okay? <laughs> well, I'm calling a truce. I'm calling I'm a truce. Just, I'm stepping in. I'm refereeing. I'm concerned. This. No, all over. <laughs> no, We're all getting on. not concerned. Come on, you. we've got a World Cup coming up. We need to be united, all right? We need to stick together. It's going to be a stressful couple of months. I am going to pick up on something Alison said, Hugh, which talked about the kind of aura of Anfield. But you could see that the players, I didn't think, Alison, weren't, you know, it wasn't they were under pressure from it, but they didn't feel that sense of, anything can happen at Anfield. You know, Leeds scored in the 89th minute. 
they then played till what ninety eight, I think. You know, that's nine minutes. Liverpool can score five goals at Anfield normally in that time. And there was an interesting moment when the ball hit the back of the net. Jordan Henderson had to point and shout at the defenders to go, go and get the ball. You know, normally you'd have a kind of like, get the ball back to the centre circle. We can turn this around. The body language of Liverpool's players this season and in those moments, we talked about it in the Brighton game, the, the reactions, they seem to be second to all the balls in and around the box. And it was the same for that goal. Where do you think that's coming? Is that is that pressure? Is that just lethargy? Like, you know, what what what, what do you think it well, is? Well, it's partly that it's just a bit demeaning to have to do that against Leeds and Forest in successive games hmm. with, oh God, I hate the phrase, all due respect. But in the normal course of events, teams that are struggling at the bottom ought to be scared of Liverpool. And the fact that that was not happening and it was successive matches, it just, I think, is something beneath you to have to do that. It's it's one thing to do it because you need a win, because you, you're not going to get through to the final of the Cup or you're not going to get through to the next stage of the Champions League under the lights at Anfield where magic happens. This is supposed to be your bread and butter, three points in the bag. I know these are the sort of games where really you can get a ticket for Anfield, but the only game you can. And people would say... Oh, I can only get a ticket for Anfield for Forest. Oh, well. Or Leeds. Oh, well. You know, it's not the big one, but better than nothing. I might see nine goals like I did against Bournemouth, I suppose. <laughs> the fact that it's not that has gone somewhere. I don't know where it's gone, whether it can come back. It's very, very difficult as a collective to feel that surge of adrenaline and passion and pride when it's you're not supposed to be doing it. You know, it's like the catwalk model who's asked to go to Sainsbury's wearing a scarf. She's embarrassed to do it. So they're two big time is what you're saying. They're two big time. Not, not, like, not literally it, that, but something approaching that. No, no, but it was reality hitting home that they aren't as great a side as they have been over the past few years. And when they, every excuse has been expunged so far this season. They had a great seven goal win against Rangers. They beat Manchester City and, and fans and players felt... Or maybe we've turned a corner. We can put ourselves on a great run again. We can get ourselves back in the fight. And these two games have sort of hit them in the face like a wet fish that we are not that great a side this season. It's just, it's a hard thing to take when you've been as brilliant as they've been. They now have doubt where there was none before. Like, it doesn't really matter why it's there. It's there because they've lost games. But I think you're reading far too much into the Anfield idea. They keep give, gifting goals too. What's that, 8 and 12 or something they've gone behind first? They just keep gifting teams goals. And that just erodes confidence and doubt sets in. And Trent Alexander-Arnold said it in the in the game today. He's mm. basically admitted as much. We, you know, we've never really felt like this before. I think that Liverpool reality has hit home now, yeah. If they're to get out of this, the first thing they need to do is cut out the errors that are making them go behind because it's it's hard to like understate how sorry hard to overstate how how much that erodes your confidence and belief when you're on a bad run anyway. If you continually go behind, it's like the murmuring start. You play sort of a bit more within yourself until the moment where you have to go and you have to go and do something to win it. It's like it's so hard to play in those circumstances. In terms of the team they're playing against, Leeds. I mean, J James Gearbrand's writing his football newsletter today about it, whether it was under Bielsa, but particularly under Jesse Marsh, they feel like a team that plays well against big teams. And we're talking about, you know, being able to match your opposition. You know what you're going to get from Jesse Marsh's leads, particularly a team that are under pressure and needed a result. You know, they're not the most informed team, but they're going to play with a lot of intensity. They're going to press you. They're going to harry. They're going to be able to capitalise on the mistakes. And I take your point that that's a kind of psychological thing, but is there not an element of failing to prepare for that? Because you know what you're going to get from... 
that kind of lead performance away from home, surely? Well, yes and no. I mean, they still could have won the game. M- Melly had a great game and goal. Yeah, yeah. Liam Cooper still swiped out fresh air and sent in Darwin Nunes and he missed. So, like, they're just not reaching the same standards. And I think they could have won this game. They could have won the game. It's, we're talking about fine margins so often. And the defending at the end was just, you know, bizarre. It was like, it's almost like, that's the one thing I would I would say where it was like they were a little bit big time. They almost thought we don't really need to make this tackle here because yeah, yeah. the guys can't. He's not going to score. No, he's running down an alleyway. We, one, part of them were thinking we don't want to give away a penalty, but part of them were thinking he's not going to do anything here. We'll take the goal kick or whatever's following, and we'll get a, a, one last attack. They, they were very wrong. It was a great instinctive finish. So Leeds deserve credit. For yeah, the there of, it is. I was going to say we need to get that no, in absolutely. quicker than we did. No, it, no they deserve it for the heart, and they also it was, it was heartening to see the the way that. Um, they all surrounded Marsh afterwards. Mm. You know, we're talk- we spoke about the managers under under fire, under heat, sorry, under pressure um, last week, and he was he was right at the top of the pile. And it's, it, one thing is clear: the players are all playing for him. I still, I know, I stand by it. Liverpool could have won this game quite easily. Leeds still can't defend. You must be delighted for the Leeds fans, Alison. <laughs> the massacre. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think. It shows that the fans that travel are more supportive than the bulk that are at home. They didn't turn on Jesse Marsh and they they were prepared to acknowledge that their team were playing with energy and confidence and that if they kept cheering them, they might get over the line. And may that be a lesson to them. But he deserves credit. I mean, he's the one that always... You know, I, I know people make comments about him as, a, as an American, you know, manager in the Premier League. But there is usually a sense of positivity from Jesse Marsh. You know, he phrases it in quite a big way usually. And sometimes the rhetoric is a bit much for us dour Brits. But, you know, he has kept that positivity within the group. He has taken them to Anfield with a belief that they can get something. They've played with the intensity that typifies them. That's off the back of four straight defeats. That makes it really a huge result. And it could be a turning point. We still expect them to be towards the bottom of the Premier League. But it could be a springboard. Well, no, I, I supported him the last time we chatted about Leeds. I wasn't having a go at Jesse Marsh. Although, you know, there, there are loads of open goals to have a go at an American in the Premier League. I wasn't having a go. I was saying if you get behind him, you never know what might happen. I don't know how difficult it must be to be in charge of a team knowing not even the fans it's not that they don't rate you or like you they're just in love with someone else it's really tough and I think in the context of what was happening to him for him to get the team to be playing as a unit and with passion and with camaraderie he deserves a lot of credit for that he brought in quite a lot of players as well and we mm. talked excitedly about the Aronsons and people like that but it takes time for them to settle in like Tyler Adams I thought was excellent in midfield um, against Liverpool and he's someone that I was excited about seeing but you know not always it's going to happen straight away it might be the odd performance here and there and that offers hope for the future as well one, oh. more, one more thing about Liverpool there's a bit a line in the paper that struck me today is if you take away the nine goals against Bournemouth they've only scored 14 in 11 Premier League games it's not just that they're conceding first it's both ends of the pitch they're misfiring too they're missing chances they're not they're, they're a, a team that is completely out of sync so it's got to be a big worry now for Jurgen Klopp. Interesting to see how Jurgen Klopp uh, navigates through this time, especially as we build up to the World Cup, but yet work for him to do. Still work for Jesse Marsh to do, but Leeds go marching on. Really positive result for them. We'll talk about a big win for Arsenal next. We'll also round up some of the interesting stories of the weekend. Alisson's been to meet the Decordovers. We'll be talking about that. And also Kevin De Bruyne and Marcus Rashford. So plenty still to come. Stay with us. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Arsenal scored five in the Premier League this weekend. They head back to the top of the table with a win over Nottingham Forest at the Emirates Stadium. But Forest really crumbled after the break in this one, conceding four of the goals in the second half. This is a weird one for us to discuss, Gregor, isn't it? I mean, we have to start appreciating, I think, that we're going to see big Arsenal wins this season, particularly against some of the, the smaller sides. They have the potential to go out there on any given weekend, score beautiful goals and score plenty of goals. It is much like Arsenal of old. It's certainly looking that way. <laughs> and all of that being said, without Gabriel Jesus getting on the on the score sheet as well. And someone coming, you know, and Reese Nelson coming off the bench and making a real impact and, and surprising a lot of people. I've, I've seen him play well in games like Carling Cup games when they've changed a lot of players and uh but very, very rarely have I seen him play well when he's had opportunities in the Premier League. Um which haven't been that plentiful. Uh so it was a surprise to me. But he did make a big impact when he came on. And Arsenal just have so many so many means of attacking now basically. You're getting goals and you know, different sources and different goal scorers as well. Party's goal was was a surprise as well. <laughs> Wonderful finish. And Martinelli just continues to to kind of rise really he's such a such a huge player for them now and you know the one worry will be Saka and his his knock but undoubtedly Arsenal are a team that now have as I say have many kind of ways to create and score goals and that's that's a big change I was there Hugh but you wouldn't have known that (laughs) (laughs) I was there and I I started my report with the question when is a title race not a title race the answer being when it involves Mikel Arteta's Arsenal because even though they went back to the top with an emphatic win people are still not treating it as a title race and uh, given the problems that that Forest have. I don't. I don't think it's about what happened on the day. It's about whether we think what we saw is something that can be maintained through the season, so that come the last day of the season, they're still in the conversation. And most pundits and most people on this podcast would say mm, probably not, because City are used to it and they're the machine, and Arsenal are not. But you have to go on the evidence, and the evidence of what I saw was a team that have absolute stacks of self-confidence and they're really classy there's a lot of players that were classy in this performance Erdegaard I think gets better with every successive game his movement is phenomenal he was doing double pirouettes at one point and he whenever there's the space he knows when to run into it and when not when to defend it he seems to have a really good instinct of what the team need at any given point it's sometimes incredibly subtle what he does 
but it's there. It's the right. He's in the right place to offer support or to make a run or to see something. He's not a gorgeous player to watch the way that like when Christian Eriksen's on absolute superb form, you think, oh, well, he's a class act. It's not quite like that, but it, it's subtler than that. But he's so clever. And you, when you've got a player like Jesus, who was there to score goals, but he didn't score goals, but he provides assists. And he, again, lots and lots of intelligence. A team with that much cleverness in the team are capable, surely, if if Arteta can keep this magic trick going of making them believe it's possible, they do have the intelligent players on the pitch to see them through whatever obstacles come along. So I would say stop patronising them. And whilst they're on top of the table, call it a title race. I agree. Very much agree. What do you think of the weekend, Tom? Mikel's boys at it again. I've backed him for so long. <laughs> Finally, everyone's come round. Even Alison Rudd has come round to Mikel Arteta. I knew it would happen eventually. Who, who did the early Richarlison versus Jesus shout? Listen, I mean, let's just. Let's look at it's He's, close in terms of goals. I think Richarlison <laughs> might be ahead, but in terms of the teams, there's only one winner. See, that long, was the question too, wasn't it? It's a long mm-hmm. season. Team impact. But anyway, I, I think there's a couple of points that Alison made that are really interesting in terms of a title race. One, you've got players scoring from all over the pitch you know Jesus doesn't score but players are scoring there are lots of scoring different types of goals You've got Thomas Partey it's becoming a trademark isn't it running onto the ball on the edge of the box someone from the right lays it off and he bangs it in the top corner Martinelli I thought that goal in terms of intensity and desire he pings the ball out wide and then he's charging into the box almost like you know we used to praise Frank Lampard for doing it at Chelsea that desire and they picked it up on match of the day too, how many players that Forrest had in the box defending it, and he's the one who wins the header. You know, a flashy forward player from Brazil charging into the box and diving in in front of Steve Cook to head the ball in the bottom corner. That's what Arteta's given them as well. But also, the Reese Nelson factor, and I'm not saying that he's a like-for-like replacement for Saka, but he came in, scores two goals. Tomiyasu has been playing at left-back. It all seems to fit. They have these pieces that come in and, and fit perfectly. That, to me, suggests that there's a bit of longevity there, that it's not a kind of top level. It's not just Jesus and it's not just Saka. And it's, oh, well, these guys have got to perform. Otherwise, we won't do it. This performance, as there have been others recently, show that it's a squad effort, that they're all pulling in the same direction. And Reese Nelson, I think let's just talk about him for a second, because he's um, he's come through the Arsenal Academy, not quite good enough. So he goes out on loan, hmm. PSV and uh, Hoffenheim, comes, comes back, with the right attitude, according to Arteta. And he's a joy to be around. I mean, quite often these players get a bit like, well, when's it my turn? Sulky, you know? yeah. But no, he's... And, and not only two goals and assist as well, really heavily involved from the second he came on. And it's a kind of weird time to come on, isn't it, 27th minute? Because you know you weren't going to come on. You know you're only on because there's been a, an injury to a key player. That could make you feel, I don't know, could make you feel insecure or nervous or too under too much pressure or overly keen to succeed. The way he slotted in, that must speak of extremely good coaching down the ranks at Arsenal, that they knew that might have to happen and he was ready to do it. And his last Premier League appearance was that embarrassing defeat last season against Brentford. So he, it, it wasn't like he came, he came back without a bit of baggage. So Yeah, absolutely. When we, just, we talked about kind of body language at Liverpool and players not seeming like they were kind of pulling in the right direction, seeming a bit overwhelmed. Arsenal don't seem overwhelmed by being top of the table, which is another thing you might have thrown at a young manager and a young squad. You might say, "Oh, they're going to bottle it. They're going to the pressure's going to come." They're absolutely loving it. I think we, you know, we we can give them a little bit too much credit when Forrest were so woeful. You know, <laughs> there was so much kind of unmanned acreage for Nelson to exploit when he came on that it was just 
ridiculous. He was just running running into the box completely unchallenged a lot of the time. Look, the question with Arsenal is, so you're saying it's it's almost disrespectful to, to say there's, this is not a title race. The question then is what's going to derail them? And I think Tom makes a lot of good points there about you look at the squad and it's not like there's lots of players that can be are, are moving parts. So Tommy Asu can come in at both left and right back and White could slot in if they lost a the centre half. I just look at Partey and I look at Jesus and I think if they lost either of them, it would be a catastrophe. I think Jesus has been so impactful. And we just said it's not just all about goals. It's, he's so determined and menacing and like, I don't know, intense. Hmm. It's just, he's a nightmare to play against. It's whether he's like, you know, spinning around in the box and kind of slaloming between players. It's whether he's laying off. It's whether he's dropping deep and allowing Martinelli and Saka to run in behind him. Everything about him has transformed their attack line. So if you lose him, there's no one else that comes close. And I think the same is true of Partey. I think Xhaka has been sort of liberated by being able to move forward, play higher up the pitch. Partey is the one who... Although he's, you know, he's contributing going forward, he's the one who is the kind of bedrock of midfield. And again, I don't see anyone else who can fill in that, that position. The rest of it, I see... Look, Salib has been transformational as well. But as I say, there are moving parts at the back for them. So for me, if they keep those two players fit, they'll go close. They won't beat Manchester City to the title. <laughs> but if they keep those two players fit and they, and they have a, you know, with a fair wind... They will be in the race. What exactly? They will be what, in the race might, for a long, a longer period of time than any of us would have expected. I what think. What might derail Arsenal is the World Cup. Equally, it might be what derails Manchester City. It's going to derail somebody. We shall see at the moment. Arsenal very much in it as a Manchester City. We'll talk about their player, Kevin De Bruyne, a little bit later on. But before we get to the roundup of the weekend, Alison, you went to meet the Decordovers. I mentioned a little bit earlier, or kind of. Uh, Fulham's Bobby Decordover-Reed and his sister, the MP for Battersea, Labour's Marsha Decordover. What was that experience like for you? Oh, it was lovely, but it was such a relief. It took, you see, this job isn't all glamour. I first asked to do this 18 months ago and it has taken 18 months for there to be the right moment for Bobby to want to do it and the right time in the diary for his sister Marsha to be able to do it. I've had many false starts where something's come up to do with parliamentary business, which has stopped it. And at last it happened on the most beautiful autumnal day. And because it took so long, there's a part of you that thinks maybe they don't really want to do it and maybe this is going to be stilting or awkward or but their relationship is just beautiful she's um there's a sort of 16 year age gap she's the big sister um she was sort of giggling with pride that she was there when he was born she loved pushing him around in his pram he was laughing his head off at all the childhood memories uh their pride in each other's achievement is well, it was palpable. It was just lovely to, to to watch. And then when I went into the press room at the Emirates on Sunday, the number of journalists who said, "Ah, yeah, we were <laughs> we were hoping to do <laughs> do that interview." Uh, so it was. I felt quite a sort of like feather in the cap to have been to have persevered and to have got it. And how unusual! I mean, I did open the chat with. I've interviewed more Premier League players than I can remember, but never one with a successful sister. And uh, no, it was it was really, really lovely and just something very different as well. What did you discover about them, if anything new? Anything new? That we didn't know about Bobby de Cordova-Reed or indeed Marsha de Cordova. I don't often interview politicians. And I think given what's happened in politics lately, you might be forgiven for thinking, do you want to speak to a politician? But I would predict, okay, I'm going to say it here, 
I'm going to predict she could go far. If Labour win the next election, which would be kind of weird if they don't, but you never know. If Labour win the next election, she's she did have a shadow cabinet post, which she gave to her too. She gave up because she's in a marginal seat in Battersea. But she did say she would accept a cabinet position if invited. She is a feisty feminist and she's disabled in that she uh, was registered. She's registered blind. She can, she can see, she just can't read really. She has to have two words per A4 piece of paper in order to communicate or read and read notes and so on. And it was really touching the way Bobby would guide her. You know, so she didn't trip over a step or something. It was just really lovely. And so the key, the question I asked her was, is Bobby a feminist? Which is the first time I've asked of a Premier League footballer, <laughs> are you a feminist? And she said, he most certainly is a feminist because, as you know, he added the name Cordova to his shirt in honour of his mother because he had no relationship with his father. And she saw that as a I think a lot of people fem- wouldn't have known that. That was really interesting at the end too. And he, he also seemed really, um, he was really kind about his father too and that he was saying, if I have it within me to to kind of forget the past and... and uh, I would. I don't think he used the word forgive, but you know, to to go and assuage his regret yes. is how he put yes. it. Yeah, yeah, which was very. You're right. It was very beautiful because I think if 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 you see that someone's added their mother's name, you assume there's some bitterness there, hmm. and maybe maybe there would have been at some point. But he said it wasn't about bitterness. It was about sh- acknowledging the role his mother played in you know, a single parent making sure he got his four buses to training when he was young because they were too poor to afford any other form of transport. He's, he wants to acknowledge what she did for him and he wants to acknowledge also what all the women in his family have done for him. He stayed with all his aunts when he came to London and so on. But he has been to Jamaica to see his father and it's because he's had a child of his own and he wants to be, he's 19 months old now, and he knows he wants to be part of his son's upbringing and so he can see it from his father's point of view that why deny him that ability to have a relationship. So if I learned something about Bobby, it was that he's um, very generous spirited. Make sure you read it. Absolutely fantastic. On the Times app uh, right now, Bobby DeCordova Reed and his sister Marsha DeCordova, the Labour MP. Great interview once again uh, from Alison Rudd. I made sure to check that one out, Alison. Uh, listen, plenty still. <laughs> Let's talk Manchester City, shall we? We know how good they are as a side. We know how good Kevin De Bruyne is. What a free kick to win it against Leicester Saturday lunchtime. And the the WhatsApp groups were just flying around with just, you know, everyone sitting back and plaudits given to Kevin De Bruyne and it just came up. Surely now he is in the Premier League all-time 11. Surely now Kevin De Bruyne. I mean, not not just because of that free kick, but just the longevity and quality and achievements that he has had as a Manchester City player in England. Now, the arguments then boil down to whether we were still 4-4-2, like the early days of the Premier League, <laughs> or whether we had gone to 4-3-3, in which case we had space for Keane Vieira, Scholes slash Lampard. But Kevin De Bruyne now has to be in it. doesn't matter which formation you play. I'd play him at right back, yeah. <laughs> better than Gary Neville better than, better than Gary Neville just is he in for you Gregor oh these are hard go on just you know come on I'd like. put him at right back don't you worry you can just about say it. nice stuff about him if you like I mean he's he's like a machine really I know everyone calls Haaland a machine but he's like a, he's like almost like emotionless unless he's getting angry and he's just got this kind of ability to drive his team 
forward in, in a way like no one else, kind of since Steven Gerrard, I think. You know, like just single-handedly dragging everyone with him <laughs> and doing something that's, you know, whether it's a ridiculous pass, like diagonal ball or through ball or something like that, or just a moment of sheer genius. To He strikes the ball so purely. It reminds me of like, as I remember saying this once when, when you're like, Fourteen, and you changed from a size four to a, from a you were you were you were getting too big for a size four football, so you could kick it, you could strike it so well that you could score from like thirty yards out. And as a fourteen-year-old, I, I, I could anyway. <laughs> and then, I was we, about to and say. then we moved to we moved to a size five, and that really ended. <laughs> but he's just never ended for him. The way he strikes the ball, it's so pure, and like it looked so easy. It was a ridiculous free kick. So yeah, look, I don't know whether he's an all-time eleven. He'd be, be between him, him and Gerard, I think, because mm. as you say, you've got. Some other big players, um, like Keane, like Vieira, like Scholes. Um, but he's certainly right up there among the best midfielders that the Premier League's ever seen. He's one of those. I remember tweeting after he was taken off against... Oh, not Twitter again. ...against Real Madrid <laughs> in the Champions League moment. Just that moment that Guardiola took him off. And I was just absolutely stunned that even if he was flagging, even if he was tired in a, in a tie that hung in the balance against Real Madrid in the Champions League, that you would ever take him off the pitch because he just has that ability to drive the team, exactly what you mentioned, Gregor. That I, you know, they, were, they had a two-goal lead at that time. And with Kevin De Bruyne on the pitch, I remain steadfast in this. Manchester City go through and probably win the Champions League. Another huge error by Pep in the Champions League. Just had to outline that. Uh, anyway. Dollars to the master, dear. <laughs> throw, it, throw in all the shade in today. I'm sure I mentioned it at the time, anyway. Do um, we think, watching that goal, though, City, obviously, all the chat is about Haaland. Who's more important to them now, De Bruyne or Haaland, this season? With it's De Bruyne. De Bruyne. More but, but funny enough, when they signed Haaland, I, I, I predicted Kevin De Bruyne will now win player of the season because they had someone who could finish all of his fantastic. yeah fantastic passes. The, the only thing that Charlotte wrote about this in the, in the game today is that they've kind of changed the way they play with, you know, yeah. with a focal point rather than a sort of rotating mm. cast of attacking you know, number 10s, whatever. Mm. So if, he was to, if they were to be without Haaland long term, they would probably have to reassess that and that changes sort of the impact that De Bruyne has. You still have a huge impact, but as Hugh says, it's been magnified by the fact that he's got this guy with ridiculously long levers able to get onto the end of his crosses in the box. For me, he probably gets in the all-time 11 now, but I think it's one of those that once he's gone, you know, once he's no longer playing in the Premier League or he's retired, fans will say just how brilliant he was and he'll, he'll get in then. So it's a bit early for that shout in retirement. No, I think we'll all... Yeah, what do you think, Alison? Well, I'm just wondering if you're going to ask me because well, you... I didn't. I didn't read your tweet. You see about the Champions League. So. You've had a chance to. You know, the mic's been up. You can talk whenever you want to. Go ahead. He wouldn't have been in my all-time eleven a week ago, but since Guardiola's told him he expects more from him, and I hate the way he does that. Uh, it's my Halloween voice. Um, uh, I, you know, he's now in my all-time eleven purely just to have a go at Pep because Pep loves this because he was brought up on Cruyff and Cruyff always asked for more from him because that was his tactic. Pep thinks he now has to ask for more from the very best players. And at what some point, this is going to be counterproductive. So anyway, I, I, ho I hope it is because I'd rather Arsenal win the title than City. But um, yeah, just to spite Pep, he is in my all-time eleven. 
I think, I think it's too inconsistent, actually. I think he has a lot of quiet games, which everyone forgets. We agree. So glad you two have got on board with some kind of dig at Pep Guardiola. I'm not sure how he, how he we un- agree. unified you on this episode, but I'm glad that <laughs> he has. Our shared love of digging out Pep. <laughs> Can we, um, are we going to briefly mention some of the other great goals of this weekend? Are we, everyone, are we just, just great goals? Do you want just great, goal? great goals? Go ahead. Ben Mee's Robin Van Persie impression. Oh, that oh, was yeah. amazing. I was there, it? and that was probably the worst half of first half of football I've ever seen. Yeah, but and then Ben Mee did that. Ben I Mee. Like, oh. I like <laughs> how I like how he kind of he doesn't quite get the scissor right when you watch it. I've watched it back a couple of times, and he like does a little. It's like when you were trying to do the um, the high jump in PE as a kid, and you'd kind of get your kick wrong, and you'd just fall over. But he still managed. He, that's amazing. Ben yeah. Mee scoring like scissor kick volleys for Brentford. Who saw that coming this ben time Mee last season? Ben Mee for England. I mean, we're all on board now. Classic. As soon as he leaves Burnley, everyone like joins the Ben Mee hype train, don't they? Same with James Tarkovsky's at Everton. Johnny's nominating for his Player of the Month. Honestly, I've been banging on about him for years. Who won? Who won the poll? Tom? Well, who won? Hugh, you won again. Callum Wilson with the shout. You see, Thanks, and, he, guys. and he backed you up with another big performance. He did. Didn't he? he did. Yes, he, he did. did. As he did. did uh, Almiron as well. Remember me shouting him for that mm. lovely goal against Fulham, Gregor, which you said was a fluke, and Ian went on to be probably... Well, I stand the, by that. That one was a fluke, this one Probably the most... In, a lovely, in, lovely strike. ...informed <laughs> player in the Premier League in the last few months, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. All to speak, Jack Grealish, yeah? yeah. <laughs> Speaking of England shouts, Marcus Rashford scored for Manchester United. He got their winner over West Ham this weekend. He says, speaking to Paul Hurst in The Times, written about that today to have a read, that his head is in the right place now. So that means that he's deserving of an England call-up for the World Cup, right? Yeah, he's definitely in my squad. Is he not in yours? I don't think he's... I mean, I think there have been players who over a period of time have played better. Potentially, but he's got, but he's, got the, he's got the experience of playing international football. He's also got, you know, you, I remember you and... Um, who are you Tony, leaving out for him? Tammy Abraham? Yeah. Okay. Tony, Ivan Tony, Marcus Rashford, Harry Kane. Three forwards, there you go. Because, and I was just going to... be four, though. Well, you can add a fourth if you want. If you want to, I think there will be though. Yeah, you might be able to. If there's four, he's absolutely in no problem. But the point I was just going to quickly make, Hugh, is that you've you and Tony Cascarino have talked about Ivan Tony scaring opposition. I think even Marcus Rashford in like seven, eight out of ten form with his pace will scare international defenses. And so if he was coming off the bench as he has done for England, I think that will still be a massive string to, to the armoury of you know, Gareth Southgate in terms of what he's got to offer. Oh it's my also goodness, his one match, too. one match after underperforming no, he's for 18 been much months. better oh this season. Word. He won it, Player of the yeah. Month a few a few um, weeks ago. Like He's been much better this season. And his experience does matter because yeah. the, there will be inexperience in other yeah, other strikers that he has to, has to add to the squad. And it's his flexibility. He can play wide, he can play through the middle. One thing I would say about Tony, I was slightly, Tony was miles off it at the weekend and he was, he'd been ill. Thomas Frank said afterwards that he was ill on Thursday, missed training Friday. He said he wanted to play. And he's now sus- picked up his fifth book and he's suspended. So he won't play again before Gareth Southgate names his his, his squad. So um, I'm sli- I slightly I worry for him a little bit now, actually. I know, I know it's only two games, mm. but I think Callum Wilson's the one in the, in the, in the ascendancy. Hughes, Callum, Callum, your boy, Callum P- Pippin, your other boy, Ivan Tony. I don't think there'll be four forwards. They both they won't both go. That's, what, I do that's what I'm saying. I'm no, asking, I, I'm asking I'm just, Wozencroft to pick which yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, listen. You don't think there'll be four forwards? I don't think there'll be four forwards. There'll be three. We only play one up front, so there's going to be three. Rashford's both, though, so. Kane. I don't think Rashford gets in still. I, I agree with Alison. Again, I don't think Rashford gets in because I don't think he's shown the quality on the ball. I know he's got this 
sort of X factor where he's just in behind. If there's a, a high line, if he times his run right, you know, you see him running through on goal. Even then, his finishing for me is not great, but he can do that on the counter attack. But in terms of an England side playing with a back three that is going to dominate a lot of sides, I don't see where Rashford has more quality than Foden, even Grealish, Sterling, Saka. So for me, it has to be an injury. The reason that I would bring Tony is, I think what Tony does, his X factor, his physicality, his ability as a number nine is still better than Rashford. We can debate who's a better goal scorer if you like. But in terms of us needing to dominate another side in the penalty box, I think he's more of a penalty box striker, Ivan Tony. Are you taking Callum Wilson as well as Ivan Tony? I'd take Tammy. I think it's unfair. He, it's sort of the fact that he's in Italy. Yeah is I think one of the main reasons that we talk up a lot of the players in the Premier League. But he's been very consistent for Roma. He's scoring at a pretty decent rate since he's been there and so far this season. Not too bad anyway. Um, and again, it's a, num- it's a number nine role. It's a backup for Harry Kane. It's someone who plays in the penalty box. For me, it is Tammy. You know, he's got good enough feet. He's got good enough pace. He's got good enough awareness. Would you have Callum Wilson? I wouldn't have Callum Wilson, no. No, no. So I like Callum Wilson. I like what he does for Newcastle. I just think the other players have a little bit more quality. Has anyone said this? Just because, you know, sometimes you get a little click in the brain and you think, ooh, and then you realise you're probably <laughs> only, the, you know, the eighth billionth person to think it. But the sports washing side, Newcastle, remind me a lot of Leicester City when they won the title. They you know play that? with exactly the same spirit and pace. My God, you you've, gone, you've gone from Arsenal winning the title to now Newcastle winning no, the title go- in one episode. No, that, they're not going to win the title, but they play like Leicester did in that in that season. That leapt into my mind watching the highlights. I promise you. I'm not just saying that. And I, I'm know, glad I, we're I, all I getting on I don't think it'll now. happen. <laughs> we're all smiling at each <laughs> other. No, but there is now. some kind of like... <laughs> Energy. You're, still look, you're still looking at the players on the pitch and going, hang on a minute, they shouldn't be doing this. Hmm. They're not th- that good. Just stop <laughs> slagging Almiron off, mate. Come on, he's not, <laughs> well, leave him out. He's not that good. <laughs> no, I'm w- I am with you. I'm with you. Like, there is something uh, punching like above their weight something's as much happening as there, yeah. you can and say about Whether we like it or not, it's it's not just about the money that they've spent because it's you still look at the players on the pitch, as I say, and you go, they are they are overperforming. And that's a feat of they coaching most, as well. They are the a feat team of coaching most and, like... Alchemy. They are the team most like Leicester since Leicester. Right, we've emerged with yeah. three questions from this conversation. I just want to underline the fact I don't think they will repeat what Leicester did. No, okay. no, 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 no. But they are the most like them. Though. They are, yeah. yeah. Right, so definitives on this. Marcus Rashford to the World Cup. No, Tom? No. Yes. Alisson's no. no. Gregor? Classic Robertson. Oh, he'll go, but I don't think he should. No, I don't think he should. I'm a no. Gregor? No. Okay, Callum Wilson? Nope. No. I think he should. I'm a no. Always been a big fan of Cannibals. I'm a no. And Newcastle, I'm not going to say Premier League title, top four. Tom? I am continually shocked like the other guys, but I'm starting to think that your prediction at the start of the season that they might get top six could 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 come true. Top six, yeah. Okay. Gregor? Yeah. Uh, you know, this always happens. There's always, you always get persuaded that someone can break into top four and then, you know, money tells in the end. And I know they've got a lot of money, but they've not spent it. It's consistently over a long period, so the answer is no. That was a long answer, but it's no. I'll stick with top six, top four, a stretch too far. Finally, very finally, just had to mention this. Those of you that went to the Valley this weekend, what on earth happened? Those of you that left early, oh my word, how could you do it? Four goals scored in stoppage time. I just actually can't believe that happened. The fact that Ipswich went 4-2 up in the 95th minute of this game and didn't win 
is a disgrace. Sack Kieran McKenna now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe maybe that's too extreme. A little bit of the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer agenda <laughs> creeping in there, Hugh. Maybe that's too extreme, but it was a it was a great ending. Did you have a look? Did you see it? I did. I, w- I mean, it was the thing that consoled me most when I checked Lincoln's score and the fact that we'd lost to Port Vale. I then looked and was like, oh, God, thank God, at least I'm not an Ipswich fan because that is about as bad as it gets. I mean, oh. they've left with a draw, which is what it was before the madness started. But to, as you say, Hugh... I mean, it's a lesson. Well, they gave away a two-goal lead twice. I mean, for a team top of the league. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's shocking. But Greg, I mean, don't ask me if it's ever happened. No, 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 no. (laughs) I was going to say, but it feels like that only happens in the football league. And but we've talked about it with Blackpool and um, Sheffield United as well in terms of sendings off and late goals. I mean, this is why it's an absolute nightmare to be a fan of a team in the football league because it it can happen at any time. And that's why you go to games. And even when you go two goals, two goals up, and there's about four minutes left, you're like, "This, this ain't done yet." How many people would have left as well? Oh, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, Dobson got an absolute clothesline, and he was in midair celebrating. And it was probably the most kind of impactful <laughs> celebration I've ever seen. He got clothesline in midair, and light came down to earth. Land, right yeah. And no wonder. And if they'd, if they'd had VAR, they'd have been playing till uh, tomorrow night, wouldn't they? Well, that is a genuine point. You look at those games and those moments and you think, thank God the VAR hasn't gone down to the Football League. It's just coming in Scotland as well. And it's like, they're just, it's like seeing everything that we've gone through over the last, how many years? Mm, just starting, just beginning. They're just on that journey now. And you feel, oh, I feel sorry for them. Plymouth still top of the table, by the way, facing Exeter tonight, if you're listening. Uh, on Monday, uh, League One, by the way, check it out. Highlight Saturday night, ITV. Who presents that, Hugh? Someone a handsome chap. Famous, Don't know his on, name. famous on Twitter, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, thank you for joining me. Been fun, as always. Thank you all for listening. So much good stuff to check out on the Times app right now. Download it uh, if you can. Um, make sure you're subscribed as well to the game. It's the times.co.uk forward slash the game you'll get more of our award-winning journalism of course you will more for us to discuss in terms of European football coming on Thursday see you then when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.